0: We believe that the evidence described by my colleagues today and assembled throughout our hearings warrants a criminal referral of former President Donald J. Trump, John Eastman and others for violations of this statute. The whole purpose and obvious effect of Trump's scheme were to obstruct, influence and impede this official proceeding the central moment for the lawful transfer of power in the United States.
1: That was Maryland Congressman Jamie Raskin laying out the first of four criminal referrals made by the January 6th Committee to the Department of Justice, recommending that Donald Trump and others be investigated for the events relating to the attack on the U.S. Capitol. It was the culmination of an exhaustive probe by the committee, resulting in a mammoth 845-page report detailing the extraordinary multifaceted pressure campaign by the former president to reverse the results of the 20th 2020 presidential election. The report and accompanying material included some startling new disclosures, including testimony from one former White House staffer, Cassidy Hutchinson, recounting how a Trump-affiliated lawyer urged her to tell the committee as little as possible and to keep saying, I don't recall, even when she did, a potential case of witness tampering. How to assess the committee's performance and where do the investigations into Trump go from here? We'll talk to Raskin about that and other issues, including sharp criticism from multiple quarters that the committee was so focused on Trump that it largely avoided other critical issues, such as the performance of federal law enforcement and intelligence agencies, and why more information about violent threat warnings weren't shared with Capitol police officers charged with defending the Capitol from the mob. And then we'll talk to one of the Committee's star witnesses, retired federal appellate court judge J. Michael Ludig, about what he makes of the panel's work on this, the final episode of Skullduggery. I do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of President
0: of the United States. And will, to the best of my ability. Preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. So help me God. So help, so, help so help me God. So help me God. So help me God. So help me God. So help me God.
1: I'm Michael Isakov, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News.
2: And I'm Victoria Bassetti, a Senior Counsel at States United.
1: Well, this is a, a bitter, sweet moment for us. Uh, it's, as I mentioned, our last episode of Skullduggery. Doesn't quite mean we're going to disappear. The Skullduggery brand is being reformulated and will be back in some form. We haven't quite decided yet, so please stay tuned. But we've got a really big final bang-up episode for you on an issue that has been right in our wheelhouse. We've talked about it for you know almost two years now, and that was uh, Trump's efforts to reverse the election and the events of January 6th. And I got to say, I was a bit jaded. I didn't think there was much more new to learn. But um, sure enough, the committee came up uh, with some new bombshells, this Cassidy Hutchinson uh, witness tampering issue we're going to we're going to talk about in a moment. But there's also, uh, you know, some back and forth about whether the committee's obsession with Trump obscured what should have been a A more fulsome investigation into the FBI, Homeland Security, other federal agencies that perhaps uh, failed to do all they could to prevent the attack on the Capitol. So, there's uh, we got a lot to talk about today.
3: If I had to, you know, sort of step back and kind of distill the importance of the January 6th committee's work and this report, I think what it is is. And what's sort of mo- what's most compelling, as I as I read the report, is the kind of accretion of evidence that Trump knew exactly what he was doing. You know, we have talked for years now on on this uh, debated the question on this this podcast of whether he had the the criminal intent in you know spreading the big lie, inciting violence, you know, all of these things that ultimately, if he were prosecuted, it would come down to whether. He, he had that intent. And I think as I read this report, increasingly, I, I believe he did. On You know, l- let me go through a few examples. On multiple occasions, we learned through this committee that he acknowledged that he had lost the election. Cassidy Hutchinson heard him say it. Alyssa Farah Griffin, a, a Trump communications aide, walked into the Oval Office and he said, can you believe I lost to this fucking guy? Meadows said uh, he knew he lost. The, that That's one area of acknowledgement on his part. Then he knew, it turns out, that <laughs> the voter fraud that he was spewing, all of those allegations were, were false. And the committee is directly responsible, I think, for proving that. How did they do that? In their lawsuit against John Eastman to compel him to turn over his emails. Um, and while most of them were not turned over, the judge concluded that some of them were exempt from attorney-client privilege through the crime uh, fraud exception. And what do those emails say? Well, one of them that Eastman wrote on December 31st of 2020 said that although the president signed a verification for the state lawsuit back in December 1st, this was in Fulton County, He has since been made aware that some of the allegations and evidence proffered by the experts have been inaccurate. For him to sign a new verification, that would be in a lawsuit filed in federal court making these same claims, with that knowledge would not be accurate. And then he goes on to say, I have no doubt that an aggressive DA or U.S. attorney somewhere will go after both the president and his lawyers once all the dust settles on this. Well, he was prescient on that point. So over and over again, you see that Trump knew exactly what he was doing. I think that's pretty significant.
2: And I think when I look back on the committee, I really think about two things that I take away from it and the report. The first is to follow up on what you said, Danny, which is not only Trump's state of mind, but I think on multiple occasions, the committee uncovered things that Trump actually did. And perhaps to my mind, one of the most compelling things that it uncovered was Trump's direct role in assembling the fake electors. He had phone calls with Rona McDaniels, the head of the Republican National Committee, and specifically asked her to help coordinate this effort and to get it underway. So he has his his fingerprints all over a scheme. And by the way, let's
3: just, let me just one thing on that, Victoria, because one thing that was new to me, I think uh, it came up in the hearings, was that uh, the report said that Trump had a 23 minute call with John Eastman on the same day that Eastman began preparing that now infamous memo laying out this kind of last minute effort, the the sort of the the legal coup, uh, the paper coup, as as they call it, which would involve the fake electors.
2: Yeah. And the fact that he was hands-on, and then there's more evidence that his chief of staff, Mark Meadows, was hands-on with it, with Cassidy Hutchinson reporting that he had dozens of conversations regarding the assembling of these fake electors, demonstrates that this scheme went on for a very, very long time, that they were teeing up the Mark Pence thing you know, as in, in early December. But before you jump in, Mike, I just want to say the other thing that I think is really an important take. Away about this committee is is how they conducted the hearings. It was an unprecedented and way that the House of Representatives did a hearing. Um, it broke up a very ineffective and inefficient technique that House committees have used for for eons now with five minute speeches and 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 kind of vicious bickering amongst the members of the committee. It created a real narrative. Uh, Now, I know Mike has got problems with
1: that. <laughs> I so. do. I do. But let's set that as, aside for the moment, because- One, uh, on one the... last
2: fight, Mike. One, <laughs> one last, last
1: fight. Yes, yes. We have to um, We have to entertain the skullduggery audience <laughs> with our uh, debates. Uh, but look, on the fake elector uh, scheme, actually, the evidence is even better than that, because tucked away in there, reading the report, one learns that three top ty- Trump campaign lawyers refused to participate in the fake elector scheme after the Supreme Court turned down the Texas suit challenging the results of the election in Georgia, Pennsylvania, and other states, saying, look, there's no longer any legal validity. To this. There's no, uh, you know, we can't can pretend that we're doing this contingency, that these electors are only there for a contingent purpose, which is, you know, what they still maintained today. But the fact that Justin Clark, who was the top general counsel for the campaign, washed his hands of the whole thing, saying no more. I don't want to have anything to do with this. And he urged two of his colleagues to do the same. And then you get the testimony for the first time of one Robert Sinners, who was in Georgia, the uh, director of uh, day to day operations for the Trump campaign, who was assigned to put together the (laughs) fake elector scheme, the meeting in secret in the uh, Georgia Golden Dome on December 14th, when the uh, uh, pro-Trump electors met and anointed themselves. And uh, what does Sinner say? He had had no idea that the top lawyers for the campaign had legal problems with this. He was angry to learn it. And he says, quote, we were just useful idiots or rubes at that point. So I kind of that that quote kind of grabbed me. It (laughs) is also
3: worth pointing out that it was Sinners yeah. who who wrote the email Saying that they should do it in secret. Everybody should do it in secret and not yeah, let right. any of this get us. So he yeah, may yeah. have not been such a useful <laughs> idiot or rupe. He may have yeah. had some inclination but that can this was we problematic to, conduct. B-
1: before we get to our debate on how the committee uh, did its business, let's talk about the this jaw dropping testimony from Cassidy Hutchinson about her dealings with one Stefan Passantino, who was the Trump world lawyer who was initially assigned to represent her and keeps telling her in all their meetings, um, say as little as possible. Quote, the less you remember, the better. Hutchinson recalled passantini telling her, don't read anything to try to jog your memory. Don't try to put together timelines. And then he also Tells her, "We're gonna get you a really good job in Trump world. Um, you don't need to apply any other places. We're gonna get you taken care of. We want to keep you in the family. This is mob lawyer stuff." No. Yeah, right. For
3: those of, for those people who think the uh, Trump family or the or the Trump administration is basically a crime syndicate, this is um, more <laughs> evidence of of that. And the thing that's so striking about Passentino. You know, I'd heard about this. And of course, the uh, the committee had teased this uh, effort to tamper with witnesses, but they didn't put much out. Now, the, then the transcript comes out and you're reading it. And the thing that's so striking is that, you know, lawyers have a way of kind of like very deftly and subtly coaching their clients. That happens all the time. This guy was about as subtle as a ton of bricks. <laughs> um, and it was just part of the reason it was so jaw-dropping to read the exchanges between Pasatino and, and, and Hutchinson was because it was so bald. It was so out in the open, which you you rarely see. Yeah. I mean, Victoria, you're a lawyer. You you know something about how, to, how this works. And you've
2: conducted
1: Senate investigations, right? Yeah. And
2: I've prepped witnesses and represented witnesses. And lawyers have a way of coaching. I'm air quoting that. They're, they're witnesses. That they have ways of prepping them. And Passantino was, as you say, about as subtle as a ton of bricks falling on your head. I think he may have overstepped <laughs> uh, the 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 bounds of uh, of ethical coaching uh, it you remains think? to be seen he <laughs> yeah. has almost certainly and without a doubt walked his way into a Department of Justice obstruction of justice investigation which is not a very fun place to find uh, oneself and I I suppose for me one of the things that I am constantly struck by in this is how many lawyers have had to get lawyers as a result of being involved with Trump and his and his family. And it is, I mean, it's basically turned into a giant full employment act for uh, investigations lawyers in Washington DC for the last two years. But it's also, you know, as someone who maybe continues to have a, a, a naive and overly optimistic uh, hopes for the ethics of the legal profession, a slightly distressing moment. Uh, to see all okay. of these lawyers. All right. You know. But
1: before we over glorify the work of the committee, there are still legitimate criticisms and uh, questions. And hopefully we'll put some of them to our first guest, Jamie Raskin. But, you know, starting with the criminal referrals, therefore the last one, Insurrection Act, Aid and Comfort to an Insurrection. I think that's going to raise some serious civil liberties issues. You know, this is a tool. These language that's been traditionally used against the left, uh, against protesters, against unionists, against uh, uh, civil rights groups. And I think... um, it could set a pretty dangerous precedent for justice department to start going down this road because there's going to be a republican justice department sometime in the future and you know once the precedent is set for prosecuting people for insurrection they could be going after antifa they could be going after all sorts of groups that in ways we may not approve of
3: i hear right? what you're saying and and there is something a little creepy about about the aid and comfort language
1: well, which is explicitly in the criminal referral. It's not just a minor part of it.
3: Yeah. Well, it's also explicitly in the statute. Yeah, and, so, I and, so, and so the question, which is, one is, reason and so the question is, either you used. believe, either you believe yeah. in this being a, an insurrection or not. And if you believe that it was an insurrection and you decide that it should be prosecuted as an insurrection, then you have no choice but to cite. The, the actual uh, language of the statute. But Victoria, you know, yeah, no, your look, views... if, we're,
2: if we are ever going to use this statute against people, if not now, then when? And I appreciate, of course, that um, it's a double edged sword that it, it can be used against, as you say, unionists and Antifa and, and a variety of other kind of leftist causes. I say let the chips fall where they may. If this was an insurrection and if Trump did aid and abet an insurrection, then prosecute him and deal with the knock-on consequences later. I I still continue to have a fair amount of faith in the American jury system. I mean, maybe the
3: more elegant way to uh, bring, you know, hold him accountable, Trump accountable for insurrection is something else that that the uh, committee recommended, uh, which is that Congress uh, invoke... uh, Article three, three of the of the Fourteenth Amendment. Amendment, which is that if you've participated in, in an insurrection, you are no longer eligible to hold federal office. Yeah, uh, but right. I got problem with that. The problem with that is that you could never get Congress to pass
1: it.
4: Well, right. also, and, and
2: who and, decides? And too, it's, you know, like there ha- there were c- multiple cases that were brought this year against some individual. Uh, members of Congress attempting to use that clause against them, uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene right. in particular, Madison Cawthorn. I think there was also uh, possibly someone out in Arizona. It's not springing to mind right now, but you know there there have been attempts to use that and and to go to court. But 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 in truth, it's it's not a sex a self executing provision of the Constitution. It's unclear how or if it ever is really going to be used against Trump.
1: Couple of other points I, I just want to bring up. Uh, this is an old hobby horse of mine is, but we still haven't seen all the transcripts. They're dribbling them out in a very slow fashion. So key transcripts. Uh, Are they dribbling them seen. out
2: slower You're, than you can read them all, Mike? Uh, oh, I, well, good point. I mean, you know, all right.
1: Fair fair point on that one. But the point is, this, the committee, we don't know the full body of evidence. We don't know what they've left out in the report that might be exclusive for some people. There was no cross-examination of any witness at all, which is, I think, a serious problem with a a committee trying to get to the truth. Cross-examination is built into our justice system as the best way to get to the truth. And then I think the biggest criticism they're getting is how little they have to say about the FBI, the Department of Homeland Security, the Secret Service, and how they processed all the warnings that were pouring in about the potential for violence that day. That was one of the core missions. You look at the purpose of in the authorizing resolution for the committee, and it was to investigate those very issues. And in an 845 page report, All of those matters are relegated to an appendix that's, what, 18 pages with 11 pages of footnotes. So it's just a fraction, and then they don't hold anybody accountable, they form no judgments. they make no recommendations about how these uh, agencies can better perform their job. And by the way, let me just point out something else. (laughs) Look at that appendix. They get the name of the FBI wrong. They call it the Federal Bureau of Intelligence. My God. A, no one would it. ever call it the Federal Bureau of Intelligence, <laughs> right. right? It's a contradiction <laughs> in its own terms, right? Uh, but uh, I mean, kind of a yeah. boneheaded mistake that you would have thought somebody would have caught.
3: Yeah. Right? Well, look, we know why they did this. They, they Got they, the name of the FBI no, wrong? No. <laughs> we, we know why they gave yeah. short shrift to the yeah. uh, intelligence right. failures. I mean, one of the things that has been- Brilliant about the way they've conducted this these hearings and 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 the report they've now written is uh, they were master to- storytellers. They were very focused on the narrative and they were s- focused on a single villain, and that villain is Donald Trump. And when you tell when you're trying to tell a good story, sometimes you you don't want subplots uh, and other you know narratives that are go- going to distract from the main from the main event, and you know there at the end of the day this is a political document it was a very impressive investigation and they uncovered a lot of new material and uh, i think they handled themselves with uh, enormous dignity uh, but at the end of the day um, it's a political document there's a lot of speculation that it was really liz cheney who wanted to only focus on trump and not on some of these other issues including the um, intelligence fa- failures and I have a sort of a theory about that. That I wonder if, in a sense, maybe, maybe even uh, unconsciously, Liz Cheney, who was in an administration um, that was part of you know one of the most massive intelligence failures in American history, nine <laughs> eleven, which we covered, and of yes. course her father uh, was at the center of it as as right. a very powerful uh, vice president uh, during that administration. If she's like, I just don't want to go down that that road.
2: Well, if I if I could just interject, with that being said, you know, what my lingering question uh, that follow on to yours is: whatever happened to all of those uh, deleted Secret Service texts from January six? I continue to wonder what happened in that space. But on a broader note, the issue of the intelligence failures. And to properly heed the kind of growing domestic white supremacist, white nationalist threat within the United States is, is broader than just January 6th. There is a much bigger and longer and deeper conversation that needs to be had about how American law enforcement has or has not dealt with this issue over the course of far more than January 6th. It's genuinely over the course of a decade
1: can i just point out uh, one other nugget from the report on precisely that issue in this 18 page appendix they recount the testimony of the chief of intelligence in the washington field office of the fbi Who And she talks about, I think her name is Jennifer Moore, she talks about how uh, they were aware of all these online searches for the tunnels underneath the Capitol in the days and weeks prior to January 6. But she says... (laughs) We can't act on social media posts that raises First Amendment questions. We have to have a predicate to launch an investigation and social media posts looking for tunnels underneath the Capitol didn't qualify in her view. So this is precisely along on point to the very issue you're talking about, Victoria, which is, you know, in this day of social media and this rise of white supremacy, white supremacist and domestic terrorism, how should law enforcement agencies navigate that? And it would have been a good thing for the committee to address that. But clearly that was not their main purpose. uh, Yeah. And 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 it's what they wanted to do. Right.
2: It does. It doesn't mean that that issue can't and won't be addressed in the future and in other venues, but we, we a, shall see. Sur- the, missed we have a We have a new
1: Republican one. Congress in which sure uh, Jim Jordan's ha- House, House Judiciary Jordan. Committee can uh, conduct that investigation. Yeah. and uh, we'll They're going to be uh, all over it. Yeah, yeah. right. Um, yeah. All right. Well, look, we've got two great guests here, uh, but we should uh, tell you, because this is our last podcast, that after you hear from Jamie Raskin and Judge Michael Ludig, who's got quite a bit to say about all this, uh, we're going to come back and um, sort of uh, give you a little our fond farewell Uh, i understand our producer mark seaman has a little special surprise uh to read for our audience so keep with us but in the meantime as i say we've got raskin and ludig so let's get to it All right. We've now got with us one of our all time favorite Skullduggery guests, Congressman Jamie Raskin of Maryland, a key member of the January 6th committee and also just uh, named the uh, ranking Democrat on the House Oversight Committee. Congressman, welcome back to Skullduggery.
0: Thanks for having me, Mike. It's great to be with you and with Danny. And Victoria Bassetti. And
1: Victoria, your former student, as I've heard. So look, uh, the committee wrapped up this week, uh, released a mammoth 845 page report and made these criminal referrals, which you were the member who laid them out at the final hearing of the committee. I just want to ask you, how important is it to you that the Department of Justice Act on these criminal referrals and bring cases? And
0: if they do not, how disappointed will you be? I would say it's important to me. You know, on a scale of one to 10, I would say it's, you know, it's up in the nine range. Um, with some of my colleagues, it might be a 10 or an 11 or a 12. <laughs> you know, I think there are questions of individual accountability, which are critical, but there's also questions of, general collective social and political accountability, which I think are really urgent and pressing, and we have got to defend the democratic system. But having said that, I do think it's very important that it happen and that we establish that it's not just foot soldiers, but kingpins who are prosecuted, and it's just wrong to send hundreds of foot soldiers to jail and leave the very clear kingpin unprosecuted.
1: And if Attorney General Garland does not sign off on the criminal charges you have referred, what would be your reaction?
0: Well, I I would just be surprised if that happened. I really would be surprised. I mean, it's just it's so clear that he intended to interfere with a federal proceeding. That's the whole meaning of stop the steal. Go in there and prevent them from counting electoral college votes. Uh, he called the march and the rally for the exact same time Congress was in the joint session counting electoral votes under the 12th Amendment. That was no accident. I mean, they had to change the date and the time on the U.S. Park Service permit that the um, Women for America First had gotten from January 21, the day after the inauguration, to January 6th the peaceful transfer of power day. I mean, that was the first time in American history that any president had ever called a mass wild protest against the peaceful transfer of power. And it was the only time since 1861 with Abraham Lincoln when there was the danger of violence. And it was only in this case that the violence actually materialized and overtook the House and the Senate. So it was very clear that that's what he intended to do. And uh, it was very clear he conspired to defraud the government American people. He traded an honest election for a profoundly corrupt and fraudulent election with counterfeit electors. They filed false statements with the government with those uh, phony electoral college slates. And he aided and assisted and gave aid and comfort to insurrectionists at multiple points, including at 2.24 p.m., on January 6th, when he knew we'd been driven out of our chambers, the vice president was on the run, they're chanting, hang Mike Pence. And he tweets out, uh, Mike Pence didn't have the courage to do what needed to be done. And then afterwards, of course, telling the insurrectionists, he loved them and they're very special people and remember this day forever. So it was all about eating and assisting and of course, inciting beforehand and then giving aid and comfort to them. So we think that you know, it's just a mainstream heartland application of these statutes to his conduct. And there have been hundreds and hundreds of convictions already for similar offenses. You know, some things that he, we didn't recommend referral for, like assaulting the federal officer, destroying federal property, things like that. But we looked at all that stuff. But we think that we were very cautious and conservative in our recommendations.
3: Congressman, you did... A lot more than just make recommendations to the Justice Department uh, to prosecute Donald Trump on on these these four offenses. You also developed a huge evidentiary record. You unearthed a lot of evidence, a lot of bombshells, and you assembled it in a in a very powerful narrative. Tell us what you think is the most important new evidence that this committee developed um, in its investigation.
0: What new evidence since when? since the events of January 6th? Oh, oh, well, you know, a lot of Cassidy Hutchinson's testimony recreated the scene of Donald Trump uh, knowing that he had lost the election and knowing that the crowd was armed and dangerous, nonetheless insisting on inciting them further, you know, saying, uh, take down the mags, the magnetometers, the metal detectors, let let the people in they're no threat to me he essentially said and you know what transpired was precisely what he arranged to happen it was very clear from multiple witnesses that donald trump knew he had lost he was told by his white house counsel. he was told by the attorney general of the united states he was told by his campaign lawyers he complained to people can you believe i lost to this guy he knew he had lost you know he You know, like some great Shakespearean characters, he plays on the fact that some people think he's crazy, so they give him a pass on doing things that they would never accept from someone else. But he knew exactly what he was doing um, in assembling the mob and then lighting the flame for them to go and storm the Capitol. Uh, That's what he meant when he said, you got to fight like hell, you're not going to have a country anymore.
3: Sounds like he knew that a lot of the the, uh, voter fraud allegations, dead people voting, felons voting... Was also false, right? And it was the committee that was able to prove that in the lawsuit against uh, John Eastman, that you know, in which those emails emerged.
0: That's right. So you know, th- there's just deep culpability from the very beginning in everything that Donald Trump did. And uh, I, no, I, I'm very serious about him facing the consequences and you know paying for the cost of his actions. It's just that I think. That's not the only thing here. And, you know, he could spend the the remaining days of his misanthropic life behind bars, presumably with Secret Service agents, you know, some of whom, (laughs) you know, might, might belong with him there. You know, I don't know. How does that work?
1: Do Secret Service agents protect him inside the prison that he might be
0: sentenced to? Like everything else with Donald Trump, it's a case of first impression. I mean, (laughs) would they be standing outside the bars or would they be inside the bars? Who knows? But the point is that like that fundamentally now is not going to address the primitive forces of authoritarianism, racism, anti-Semitism that Donald Trump has unleashed in the country. And set free, and that's to me the larger concern. We've got to defend democracy and freedom in America. We got to defend the Constitution and keep things moving in the right direction. And so, you know, I don't want the prosecution and the conviction and the punishment of Donald Trump to be seen as the be all and the end all, as important as it is.
2: So just today, uh, the House of Representatives passed and the president signed the omnibus, which contains in it uh, a new law or a reform of the Electoral Count Act, which is in many ways underpinned John Eastman's advice and scheme. Tell us a little bit about what what the reforms are and um, how significant is that in your estimation to kind of stopping the forces that Donald Trump unleashed?
0: I think it was the very least we could have done But it was minimal and it was necessary, but radically insufficient to the task. I mean, saying that the vice president's role is purely ministerial is obvious. It's plain. Nobody ever believed the vice president had the authority to unilaterally nullify electoral college votes sent in by millions of people. Even Mike Pence, whose reign in office is otherwise characterized by complete Invertebrate sycophancy to Donald Trump said himself that he couldn't do it, right? So by stating it, it, it almost it almost validates uh, their absurd uh, argument that there was some kind of mystery about it or some kind of ambiguity, which there never was. But okay, we needed to say that just to deal with future Donald Trumps. Um, you know, we we lifted the threshold for objecting to state's electors from one House member and one senator to a fifth in each body. And so that's an improvement, um, although they would have had no problem, at least on the House side, of collecting the signatures for that in this past case, although I think they um, would not have made it in the Senate. I think there were only six or seven senators who volunteered to object? So, I mean, it is definitely better than nothing. But you're you're looking at an opponent of the electoral college. The very first bill I introduced as a state senator in Maryland was the National Popular Vote Interstate Compact, which Maryland then used to launch this coalition across the country to get us out of the miserable electoral college system. You know, we've uh, we've now had uh, five popular vote losers become president twice in this century the vast majority of the american people are marginalized in the elections because we live in safe blue states or safe red states and are just flyover country as everybody's hurrying to get to the handful of five or maybe six swing states like ohio and michigan we all know what they are they're the states that you know donald trump decided to lie about in the 2020 elections. But that's just a it, just a deranged way to conduct a presidential election. We should elect the president the way we elect everybody else, governors, mayors, senators, representatives. Every vote counts. Every vote counts equally, and whoever gets the most votes wins. I mean, nothing more radical than that, you know. And now, January 6th, the day of the alleged peaceful transfer of power, can get you killed because. Strategic bad actors like Donald Trump can transform every nook and cranny in the antiquated architecture of the Electoral College into an opportunity to, you know, spring booby traps on people.
1: Let me ask you about the. What's probably the most controversial of the four criminal referrals you did, and that's the one, the fourth one, which was to incite, uh, for the, the statute that applies to inciting an insurrection, as well as providing aid and comfort to it. Now, you're a constitutional law professor, you have a lifelong commitment to civil liberties, does it make you at all uneasy that this is the kind of statute that could be used by future justice departments to go after uh, people you might have more sympathy with, or at least have qualms about them using, Antifa, or environmental activists, or other left-wing protesters who at times have in fact engaged
0: in violence against the authority of the United States. I mean, not for one second. I mean, if, you know, Antifa, which of course was completely absent and invisible on the real January 6th, decided to bring 40 or 50,000 people to Washington and then proceeded to beat the hell out of our police officers and smack them in the face with Confederate battle flags and stab them with sharpened Trump flags, then I would say, by all means, if somebody incited that, uh, then they should be prosecuted for it. The, you know Under the First Amendment, the Brandenburg decision says that incitement to imminent lawless action is not protected. Free speech. So I've got no problem as a very strong civil libertarian and pro-speech person who defends free speech against the right wing all day long, saying it does not extend to inciting a violent insurrection. Against the union, and that's the that's always been the understanding of it.
1: Let me ask you, just a follow up to that. You defined insurrection as a quote rebellion against the authority of the United States. Now, after the uh, George Floyd murder, and there were protests uh, across the country, some of which turned violent, in particular in Portland, Oregon, where protesters attacked the Hatfield Federal Courthouse, nightly vandalism there. The Justice Department later brought charges against some of those for attacking federal officers inside the courthouse.
0: Was that an insurrection? I mean, I don't know enough of the details, but I would say if they entered with the intent of shutting down a trial or interfering with a federal proceeding, the way that uh, Donald Trump's henchmen and mob did, then absolutely it would be. Well,
1: that's obstructing an official proceeding, but an insurrection against the authority in the United States, that was by definition, by your definition, it seems to meet every particular because they attack law officers. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I, I don't know the specific facts of what you're saying. If somebody burns down an empty federal post office, That's arson. That's destruction of federal property. Those people should go to jail for that. It's not inciting an insurrection. But if the federal government is in its operations and there's an attempt to overthrow it, as there clearly was here, I mean, this is a federal proceeding where the constitutional transfer of power takes place. That's clearly an insurrection against the union. So you can give me some other hypotheticals, but I just I need more. Well, not hypotheticals.
1: It, it, the Justice Department charged people with assaulting federal officers at the
0: courthouse. Yes. Well, the, then they should go to jail for assaulting federal officers. The, every assault. But not insurrection. Officer, well, I don't know. But well, what's the insurrection part? Did they did they try to interrupt a, a trial that was taking place? Did they try to shut down? Well, the they were department? trying
1: to shut down the courthouse. Yeah.
0: Well, if if the courthouse was operating at that point, say some of their people were on trial and they Mm -hmm. were trying to overthrow the authority of the federal government to try those people, as the Ku Klux Klan has done before, enter trials and try to overthrow them, yeah, that would be insurrection. But you uh, stunned my yeah. silence.
1: No, no, <laughs> no, no! I'm trying to give other people a chance here. I got plenty <laughs> yeah. of other questions. But
0: <laughs> I, I, look, I, I got no, I got no problem with putting anybody in. Look, yeah. the, the Constitution of the United States condemns insurrection at multiple points. This is a critical thing that the right wing needs to be challenged on because I've got colleagues who get up on the floor of the House routinely and say, well, the whole point of the Second Amendment is to give people weaponry so they can overthrow the government if it becomes tyrannical. They believe that that's the meaning and the purpose of the Second Amendment, which is absurd. You look at Article 1, Section 8, Clause 15, it says, Congress has the power to call forth the militias of the states in order to do three things, repel invasions, suppress insurrections, and to enforce the laws if the laws are being interrupted with or thwarted. But suppressing insurrections is what militias are for. And they think that the people are the militia and form into a militia in order to overthrow the government. You know, it, it defeats the treason clause. It defeats all the clauses saying that the Republican Guarantee Clause, for example, which says that Congress has the authority and the duty to guarantee a Republican form of government and to help the states put down domestic violence. So this is a critical point. Uh, you know, The only point I was making with you, Mike, is that you've got to make sure that, that insurrectionary violence is insurrectionary violence and not just violence. Every time somebody knocks over a bank or a store is not an insurrection, um, You know, just because they're engaged in a robbery. They should go to jail for robbery or armed robbery or whatever it is.
3: Congressman, I'm interested in, in um, your sense of the kind of broader impact uh, of the January 6th committee's investigation uh, on the country beyond, you know, the, the, the case that you're making against uh, Donald Trump. Because it strikes me that the release of the report, your findings, is also coinciding with Donald Trump's sort of a, a pretty profound weakening in, in Donald Trump's uh, power and, and kind of reputation and a, a little bit of a sense that the sort of fever has broken now. Clearly, the midterms, midterm elections uh, probably has something to do with that. It may just be some level of exhaustion uh, with Trump. But do you have a sense or is there polling that you've seen or anything that, that you can detect uh, that would tell you something about the impact that you all have had in terms of sort of the fever breaking in this, in this country? It's a little bit of a subtle question, but I wonder if you have thoughts about that.
0: I, mean, I, I guess I don't really know the answer to that question. I've believed all along that people would focus on the extreme radicalism of the events that we experienced on January 6th, and people would come to understand in time the absolute derangement that we've been living under. Look, the Constitution itself says in Section 3 of the 14th Amendment that anyone who has sworn an oath to support the constitution and violates the oath by engaging in insurrection or rebellion, shall never be allowed to hold federal or state office again, military or civil. That is a constitutional principle. So I hope that every textualist and originalist in the land will take the time to read section three of the 14th amendment and understand if you engage in insurrection, you're banned from holding office. The history of that provision is really interesting because the radical Republicans in the house started by saying anybody who participates in rebellion or insurrection should never be able to vote again, should be disenfranchised. And when it got over to the Senate, they said that sweeps way too far. It shouldn't apply to anybody who participated in the rebellion. Only the people who had actually sworn an oath before to the Constitution. And even then, it shouldn't apply to voting. It should only apply to holding office again. In other words, this is the bullseye core of the meaning of Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, what Donald Trump did. So if you look in our recommendation section, we say that we believe that this is self-executing. It's an automatic constitutional bar to holding office. But we do think that Congress should act in order to develop a statutory mechanism for people getting into federal court and the DOJ getting into federal court in order to block people so we have a uniform nationwide solution
2: to it. So looking ahead now to 2023, as Mike mentioned, you're going to be the ranking member on the House Oversight Committee, which has already announced or indicated, you know, some intentions to uh, investigate things like uh, Hunter Biden's laptop and a variety of other issues. As you think about now being essentially the chief, spokesperson for the Democrats dealing with some of the the most, let's say, aggressive investigations that the House Republicans are going to be uh, conducting. What do you think is going to be your main mission? How do you think you're going to be able to handle a very different committee?
0: Well, our central mission, as always, will be to make progress for the American people. And we campaigned, of course, on following through on some very big successes we had in the 117th Congress, the uh, infrastructure legislation, a trillion and a half dollar investment in the roads and highways and ports and airports and expanding broadband in the rural areas and so on, dramatically lowering healthcare costs, limiting prescription drug costs in the Medicare program, limiting to $35 a month, what diabetics have to pay for their insulin shots. So we wanna follow through on all of that and keep it going. Now, the Republicans... They campaigned on inflation and crime. They don't talk about either anymore. Now, all they want to talk about is Hunter Biden and Hillary Clinton and uh, Donald Trump's plan for withdrawing from Afghanistan, which was basically implemented by Joe Biden. Things they never talked about in the campaign. That's what they want to highlight and showcase. So what's our job, Victoria? It is to prove to America, just show America that none of that has anything to do with what either party has really come to Washington for, at least what we campaigned on. Isn't part of your job oversight? Well, yes, of course. But oversight means let's make sure that the infrastructure money money is getting to the cities and the towns and the states. Let's make sure that the diabetics are actually getting the benefits we voted for them. And if there's corruption interfering with that in the government then let's dis- dislodge the corruption but going after a president's son who was you know who had a a serious health problem addiction which is something that affects millions of people and just you know vilifying and demonizing him it has nothing to do with what we've come i i want people to see the utter absurdity of that as their form of politics but it makes sense you know because they went to their convention in 2020, and they came back as the first modern political party not to have a platform. They literally had no platform, nothing they were running on. Why? Because their platform is whatever Donald Trump tells them it is, it is on any particular day. I
3: was thinking more of the, the Afghan withdrawal, which you mentioned, which doesn't oh, yeah. strike me. It doesn't strike me as binary. I mean, it was not a flawless withdrawal, so it would seem right.
0: Yeah. I'm. Uh, you know. I'm. I'm very happy. You know, to look at that and, you know, we can see what mistakes were made, but th- they act as if the two administrations weren't closely linked in that effort. And Donald Trump had a huge responsibility for what happened. But in any event, well, I mean, we can get into it. That's legit. You know,
1: I have to ask you one more on the January 6th committee, because you are getting quite a bit of criticism on one front, and that is The relatively little you had to say about the performance of federal, state and local law enforcement agencies in the events related to January 6th, that was part of your authorizing resolution. In fact, it's the first purpose of the committee was to investigate that. And in this 845 page report, that entire issue is relegated to a pretty skimpy 18-page uh, appendix with only 11 pages of footnotes, and nobody held accountable. No explanation for why the Intel warnings that were being collected by the Secret Service, the FBI, and others never made it their way to the proper people at the Capitol Police, who could have been better prepared. What explains the committee's failure to do what its per- one of its original purposes was, which was to do a thorough
0: investigation of these issues? Well, I think we did a very thorough factual investigation of what happened, the best that we can reconstruct it with lots of divergent viewpoints and testimony. And we get into the weeds and the details of everything that everybody said and what we were able to learn and what we were not able to learn. Having said that, uh, it's clear none of the law enforcement or national security agencies that had received information knew anything about Donald Trump's intentions that day.
1: Why does that matter? There were plenty of warnings out there that on social media, that people were coming to kill, to invade the Capitol. What difference does it make what Donald Trump said or doesn't say they were coming and federal law enforcement agencies did not coordinate did they did not distribute the information there's a lot that a lot of people who do you who do you hold accountable for that who in who in the fbi homeland security or secret service do you hold accountable for the failure to do their job
0: well, ultimately, I mean, if you buy the unitary executive theory that. the But you don't buy have... the
1: unitary executive theory. Well, That's a uh, right wing uh, theory that you no, but, ridicule. But, no, but, Come under,
0: on. No, but under under the Republicans, I do. Donald Trump was clearly in control of the executive branch of government, and he had no interest in activating anybody, whether it was the Army, the Navy, the Marines, the National Guard. Uh, he, he didn't call the D.C. police. He didn't call the Capitol police. So what we had was a commander-in-chief who was just acting as the inciter-in-chief. He went over to the other side. And so fundamentally, it demonstrates what happens when you don't have leadership at the top. He was inciting. He was assisting assisting and aiding and abetting. So I, I'm not averse to doing what you're talking about. You know, we, you know if, if we want to engage in a completely different investigation, we can go further into detail on all of that. But we laid out all the facts that we got. We spent a lot of time doing interviews on it. And it seemed like the kind of thing like to me, where there was no coherent theory of how to deal with this. And nobody took responsibility for being in charge. And ultimately, it was because the president of the United States had no interest in anybody being in charge. And he played on the fact that he just left everybody to their own devices. And some of them may have been trying to Intuit what Donald Trump wanted them to do. It's just, it's very hard to know. So we laid out the facts the best that we could. And if, you know, but where is your profession? Have the journalists figured out who was the person who dropped the ball? I don't know. But we've not been able to figure that out. Maybe the prosecutor. Here
1: as well. <laughs> well, we have done a lot of reporting on that. But um, as in your new role as ranking uh, a minority member on oversight, maybe this is one of the issues uh, that you could um, do further investigation in.
0: Yeah. I mean, let me just say about that. If I could add one more point on sure. it. Sure. We wanted to investigate the crime first. And we did spend more time on the crime. And we spent a lot of time also on the law enforcement and national security response and the the failures of preparation. But nothing that took place absolves the masterminds and the ringleaders and the perpetrators of the offense. It's sort of like a bank robbery where somebody plans a bank robbery and gets away with it. And then afterwards you ask, well, was there anybody cooperating on the inside or why wasn't there a more effective Response. That's all legit. We want a more effective response to stop them next time. So I agree with that. But nothing absolves Donald Trump and his henchmen for what they did. And of course, the Republicans want to say, oh, you know, this is uh, Mitch McConnell and Nancy Pelosi's fault. Well, <laughs> you know, I th- th- that's that is certainly not where the trail led us.
1: Well, Congressman, I want to uh, thank you uh, for taking the time. Um, we have uh, covered uh, this investigation um, quite a bit on the podcast, and you've been one of our main guides. So, um, thanks for joining us.
0: Well, and thanks for doing what you're doing, and just go keep doing it elsewhere. We will, in some form, in some no form, no matter what, and, and we'll be back to down. you,
1: yeah. <laughs> right? <Okay. laughs> All right, we now have with us a very distinguished guest who plays more than a minor role in the events leading up to January 6th, retired Judge Michael Ludig. Judge Ludig, welcome to Skullduggery.
5: Thank you very much, Michael.
1: So we are at an inflection point. We've gotten the um, final release from the January 6th committee, its executive summary, its uh, criminal referrals to the Justice Department for Donald Trump and others. You testified before the committee. You get shout outs in the executive summary for your role. Give us your sort of bottom line take about the work of the January 6th committee, its conclusions, and how you assess them. From the standpoint of both a um, former federal appellate, Court Judge and uh, a Student of History.
5: yes, Michael. thank you. And thank you for having me on uh, on uh, your podcast. Uh, you and dan, your you're longtime friends, and it's it's just good to be back together. I probably will have a, a different take on on the hearings uh, than most of the political figures, let's just say, in Washington. I do come at it from the the perspective of of a former federal judge and a lawyer, a political lawyer at that, but the Congress uh, had a profound obligation and responsibility to investigate the events of January 6th, perhaps a greater obligation and responsibility than for any other event in American history. I mean, after all, this was an insurrection on the United States Capitol, whose purpose and objective was to obstruct, interfere with, and and prevent the uh, joint session of Congress from counting the electoral votes for the presidency of the United States. It's hard to imagine a, a, a more signal event in American history.
3: Let me, um, I know we're going to get into the criminal referrals in particular, but let me ask you the question about the impact that this select committee has had and frame it by quoting back to you. I think probably the most memorable part of your testimony before the committee, which is when you said that Donald Trump and his allies and supporters are a clear and present danger. To American democracy. And so I guess the question is, after having participated in the hearings, watched all the hearings, now seen the executive uh, summary and looked at the referrals, to what extent and, and how do you think the committee has in any way mitigated the threats that you uh, testified to, the, the clear and present danger to American democracy that Donald Trump poses?
5: Yes, Stan. As you know, that uh, I, I said before the committee that that the president and his his supporters and allies were a clear and present danger to American democracy. Not so much because of what happened on January six, although what happened on January six was the lesser included <laughs> offense implicitly in that statement, but rather. I believe them still a clear and present danger because of what they promised to do in 2024, namely to, namely, if necessary, to overturn that election in the same way that that they attempted to overturn the 2020 election through exploitation of of the Constitution and the laws of the United States. Now, to turn directly to your question, that is, how has the the committee mitigated that threat, if you will? I think that it has done more than merely mitigated. First, by way of a a short digression, it is almost certainly because of the work of, of the January 6th committee that Congress will this week, approve uh, reforms in, in the Electoral Count Act, which was one of the laws that the former president and his supporters exploited on January 6th. So that amendment to the Electoral Count Act will itself go a long way toward preventing another, you know, January 6th then turning to the to the president uh, former president and his allies uh, directly it, one senses that the committee's hearings reports and referrals may represent the final straw for uh the republicans who who, who have supported the former president up to this this point of course only time will tell but already this week with the the report and the, the final hearing on Monday and the report coming today and the executive summary already being out, I detect that Republicans will seize upon the hearings and the referrals as their opportunity to begin to distance themselves from the former president.
2: Let's turn, if we can, really quickly to the possibly the biggest suggestions or or moves by the committee which has been these criminal referrals as you mentioned and as as many have mentioned the likelihood that the department of justice would simply take the committee's recommendations as a whole is is very low the committee the uh, department of justice is going to conduct its own independent investigation and is not going to just accept these referrals without question yet the referrals are probably the most cohesive and comprehensive articulation of the potential criminal penalties that President Trump and some of his allies face. As you assess the four potential counts that the committee referred to the Department of Justice, which are the ones that you think have the most stick, are the most likely, and which are the ones that you think are the least likely for the Department of Justice to look at. And and I'll, I'll just review them real quickly uh, for the benefit of our listeners, which the committee suggested that the president be indicted for obstruction of an official proceeding, for conspiracy to defraud the United States, for conspiracy to make a false statement, and for inciting, assisting, or aiding and comforting an insurrection.
5: First, let, let, me, let me say this. Uh, the question has never been... Whether the Department of Justice would accept, much less accept wholesale, the findings and recommendations of Congress. So, so if you say that DOJ will not do that, that's not to say much of anything at all. And, and I don't, I know you don't, you don't intend that kind of false dichotomy. The only question, the only question right now is the extent to which. The report and its findings and its referrals will influence the Department of Justice in what is its independent decision, whether to indict the former president. Second point that I would just make is that the committee has not recommended that the president be indicted for the uh, the criminal offenses that you you, you just uh, outlined. It's done something you know uh, more nuanced than that. It is simply recommended to the Department of Justice based upon its own findings and conclusions that the Department of Justice continue to investigate the President for these these offenses and to decide whether together with the evidence gathered by the committee and all of the other evidence, that the department has just justice has already gathered whether to indict the president. Now turning to the to the offenses that that were uh, referred, there is ample, there's abundant, and there is ample evidence in the possession of, of the Congress to support criminal charges against the president for uh, e- each of the offenses as to which the Congress recommended. Potential charges, and then keep in mind that that the Department of Justice has much much more evidence in its own possession that would support these charges. Turning now to the specific charges, I, I won't repeat them, but I will just in shorthand. So you know we're we're talking about a um, a conspiracy, you know, to defraud the United States, a conspiracy to obstruct. An official proceeding of the United States, specifically the joint session in uh, the counting of the electoral college votes f- for the presidency, and the fourth that I'll, I'll, I'll cite uh, is um, what's known to lawyers as uh, false statements under one thousand section one thousand one, and in um, which the committee referred based upon the false statements that the the president and his supporters made with respect to the, let's call it the fake electors, the electors from the swing States that were uncertified and that were therefore unlawful, but which the the, the president and his supporters tried to whip up and have transmitted to Congress and counted by the, uh, the vice president on January 6th. And then finally uh, the fourth is a, uh, Uh, for insurrection against the lawful authority of the United States. Obviously, in this case, the same, an insurrection on the United States Capitol for the purpose of of, uh, preventing the the, the count of of the electoral votes by the joint session. That last count, if you want to call it that, insurrection, uh, is the most serious count uh, not only because of the substance of, of, of the uh, the offense, but more specifically because of the penalty that, that goes with that offense, namely the prevention of uh, the former president from holding public office again. And I, I would add that it, it's not necessary that that the uh, the defendant, uh, uh, you know, in in an insurrection case have led the insurrection it's not even necessary that he have incited it though in this case there's ample evidence that the president incited this this insurrection but one can be convicted of, of this offense merely for assisting or or aiding or giving comfort to the insurrection and the insurrectionists. So I'll be glad to, to explain the evidence that would support that if you want, but I think it's fairly self-evident that at a minimum, if it were determined by by a jury that there was in fact an insurrection, uh, there's ample evidence to support the fact that the, the pres- former president, at the very least, assisted or aided in that that insurrection.
1: Judge you were of course a, a US Court of Appeals judge for 15 years in the 4th circuit but for the purpose of this podcast I'm going to anoint you a district court judge. A district court judge who presides over the trial of Donald Trump on one or more of these counts. If he is convicted, Based on the evidence we have today, obviously more would come out during a trial and there would be defense. But based on the evidence we have today, if he's convicted, do you sentence him to federal prison?
5: The the only reason I hesitate, uh, Michael, on on that is is that I would have to I would want to go back and look at each offense for which that uh, the, the former president would have been convicted to, to study the 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 penalties for each, <laughs> having just talked about the insurrection that's the one I want to, would want to go back and look most yeah. close they're, they're yeah. all felony counts yeah yes uh, yes and, and i i believe that that were the former president can, convicted of let's say all, all four of these counts that the district a district court judge would sentence the former president president to uh, in, in, in imprisonment That would be, of course, uh, as you can appreciate, the merely the beginning of the very long process during which the former president would would challenge the convictions themselves, the sentencing um, by the district judge, all the way up through the Court of Appeals and and then finally to the. uh, But
1: just uh, to be clear, you, you cast that as a district court judge for the purpose of this podcast. I've made you the district court judge. Would you? sentence him to prison
5: for well you know I know Michael but I'm the judge so you don't get to you know put the question to me that way. Uh, uh, I'm the podcast host. (laughs) Yeah he's the podcast president. I can ask anybody.
1: Yes you can ask
5: any question and and as your guest I can refuse to answer this. (laughs) Okay. But but no no I'm not I'm being coy with you when I say that this is a, a momentous thing. Already at this point, you're positing now the conviction years from now of, of the former president of of these offenses, and asking me as a uh, as a hypothetical district judge whether I would sentencing him to it. And and what I'm what I was trying to say in, in, impliedly was that I don't know that a district judge a district judge would have any choice but to sentence the former president to imprisonment under the the, the terms and provisions of these various offenses.
3: Let me ask you, Judge, as you say, it'll be a long time before we'll know the answer to this, what a judge would do. And the first thing you'll have to do is prove the elements of these alleged offenses. And let's start with the one that on this podcast, uh, we've talked to a lot of people former prosecutors, uh, other lawyers who've said that that the insurrection charge would be the most difficult one to prove. And my my understanding of that was that it's because you would have to prove intent, that it's not enough that his words may have incited violence. It's not enough that, that his words may have riled people up that led to violence, but that he would have had to intended that his words would lead to violence, um, that that would have been part of his plan. Wouldn't you have to prove uh, prove that to win a, a conviction for that particular offense,
5: insurrection? I'm not sure, Dan, as you worded it, if we go back to the statute, you know, it's whoever incites, sets on foot, or assists in an insurrection, or gives aid or comfort there too okay so what what you would have to show under the statute is that the that the former president you know intended to for instance assist in an insurrection or give aid to an insurrection do you see the distinction i'm drawing under the statute between intending to incite the insurrection and intending to assist or give aid to the uh, insurrection that intent would have to be proven but that's much different than, than 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 the intent that that i i think that you suggested and that others are, are suggesting you know as well that the, the the primary uh, concern that i've read of others about the insurrections char- uh, charge is is it uh, they in their view, there's no evidence of an agreement. But but I'm not sure that, that you have to have you know evidence of an agreement that is for among co-conspirators in order to violate section twenty-three
3: eighty-three. Well, let me ask you this just quick follow-up question, as you know, and, and now wearing your hat as a longtime appellate court judge. One of the things that Merrick Garland and the prosecutors working on on their investigation of Donald Trump have to be thinking about is not just can they win a, a conviction before a jury in Washington D.C. They have these other kind of prudential considerations about whether the conv- that that conv- conviction would hold up on appeal. And I'm assuming that the last thing they would want to do in a in a case like this, the first time a former president had ever been, you know, prosecuted and for offenses that have rarely been charged in our history is roll the dice on the insurrection charge in particular but on the others as well. How confident are you that if they were to win convictions that these that those convictions would hold up on on appeal? Do you think that this is a a close call for the justice department or do you think it's not a close call and they should do it?
5: Well, let me try to pull apart the, the, the several questions in that, Dan, yeah. uh, but, but let me begin by the one question that was, was clear. I am confident that if the Department of Justice eventually charges the former president with these or, or, or any of these uh, offenses, and if the former president, of course, were convicted for those offenses, that they would be uh, upheld on appeal all the way to the Supreme Court. The second point I would make is that, and I've given a great deal of thought about the the ultimate decision of the Attorney General, uh, that there are, um, what what I, I would describe, the considerations of the ability of the Department of Justice to secure convictions and the ability of the Department of Justice to sustain those convictions on appeals as more practical considerations than prudential considerations, as you said. What I consider to be the overarching prudential consideration and the single most important consideration uh, that the Attorney General has to make is whether... To prosecute the former president at all, irrespective of the evidence that the attorney general uh, will marshal in support of the of those convictions of those charges. So that's where I would focus uh, your listeners that on that issue. You know, as conversationally discussed frankly, for many, many years now with respect to either a sitting president or or a former president, you know, it's stated this way, you know, is it in the interest of the United States of America to prosecute a president or a, a former president? Or is it better in the interest of, of the United States that the Department of Justice do its work, report its findings, but in the end not prosecute the president or former president. That's the paramount consideration. That,
3: that's actually fascinating to hear you say that. Is If I'm hearing you correctly, is an option here that the Justice Department does its investigation, uh, the grand jury does its work, but in the end, they choose not to prosecute. Instead, a report is written and the report is released publicly. And that is how they kind of try to get accountability for, for the president or or did I misunderstand you?
5: No, 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 you didn't, Dan. Uh, uh, th- that's exactly what I was saying. Uh, you know, to put a point on it. And, and look, I'm not an expert in in this aspect of, of the process, in particular. But but we all know that the the, the attorney general, you know, uh, convenes the, the the grand jury or the court does at the request of the attorney general to investigate. And it's the attorney general and the Department of Justice that that uh, actually eventually asked the grand jury to return an indictment indictments or not. So I believe it would be possible, you know, for the the attorney general, the Department of Justice to do all of its work and for the grand jury to do all of its work. And the, the attorney general to decide not to ask for the return of indictments against the former president.
2: I think it's actually probably fair to say that no uh, executive branch agency has been more stressed by Donald Trump than the Department of Justice in many ways. It's not just the events of 2020, but certainly the events preceding that. The committee's hearings regarding Trump's efforts and the Department of Justice during the 2020 election and in the lead up to January 6th were, to my view at least, some of the most revelatory And I'm curious, as you think on what the committee showed and what those hearings demonstrated, how do you think the Department of Justice is handling the stress? And what's your evaluation of the criminal or other possible accountability mechanisms that can be utilized regarding what happened at the Department of Justice during the end of the Trump administration?
5: Uh, I have every confidence in the world that the Department of Justice and Attorney General Merrick Garland in particular, are giving this matter their greatest attention. They are fully aware of the magnitude of the decision that that the Attorney General must make. And I am 100% confident that the Attorney General will not indict the former president for any offense until or unless he is 100% confident that there is more than enough evidence to support convictions. And finally, that it is in the interest of the United States that the former president be prosecuted.
1: said before that you played a not insignificant role in all this because you were the constitutional scholar who Vice President Pence's lawyers turned to for advice when the president was pressuring him to overturn the results of the election. But you also have a history with uh, two people who played an even more significant role in the events of January 6th. As a judge, you had two clerks at the same time back in the 1990s John Eastman and Ted Cruz. They served together working for you. In your testimony, you said that Eastman's blueprint to overturn the 2020 election was, quote, the most reckless, insidious and calamitous failure in both legal and political judgment in American history. And you also have said that Cruz's role in objecting to the certification of the votes on January 6th was the most important in triggering the uh, process that took place so how did (laughs) two of your clerks who worked for you presumably were tutored by you end up being so wrong
5: well michael you know uh, you know me and you know how i conducted myself on the on the federal court and and how i conducted myself vis-a-vis my law clerks they were always each year Literally, the best and brightest that coming out of the law schools, and the year that Ted Cruz and John Eastman clerked with me together, they were two of of uh, the finest law students to graduate that year. They were both brilliant young lawyers at the time, and I was very proud of them as law clerks. That said that this was 25 years ago. Uh, And as you understand, and they understand, I'm the judge, not them. And uh, neither one of them has been surprised by a single word that I've spoken in the past two years, beginning uh, uh, with the advice that I gave the vice president on January 6th, John Eastman, when he read what I wrote, would have, I think, died a thousand deaths. As to Ted, Ted Cruz, in the in the passage, I think from the Washington Post that you're referencing, I merely stated fact, okay? That is that once Senator Cruz decided to object to the electoral slate, I think, out of Arizona, January six was foreordained. And that that was because, as I said, he was a tremendously powerful and influential senator of the United States on that day. And uh, under the existing Electoral Count Act, uh, under the current uh, uh, Electoral Count Act, uh, as you know, uh, uh, only one member from each house was is required to object to a state's electoral slates in order for the objection to be Uh, sent to the joint session for a a decision. Now, I'm not being coy with you. I don't want to be coy. And I didn't intend to be coy with Ted. you You know, that is the fact. And he knows it's the fact. I had
3: two quick follow up questions. One is, have you spoken to either Senator Cruz or John Eastman since the event's of January 6th transpired and since the hearings and your involvement in those hearings.
5: I've not spoken to Ted. I spoke to uh, John very, very soon uh, after uh, January 6th. And he was just asking me what I had said and what he mistakenly thought was my written uh, advice to the vice president. And I, I told John that, that that no 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 I had uh, I had only tweet the only advice I had given the vice president was the tweet on January fifth.
3: So it was a perfunctory yes. conversation. Okay. And yes. the follow up is I, what I I wonder about you know both of these former clerks of yours if in any way and if this is something that you thought about that their trajectory from when they clerked for you till the events of January 6th and in any way is representative or, or symbolic of a kind of wrong turn that was made in the conservative movement or the conservative legal movement in this country, or if you think they're outliers?
5: That, that's a good question, Dan. Uh, I've never thought about that. But the answer to it is yes, that their certainly their actions on January 6th are were representative of legal thought as it's developed over the past decade. That's exactly right. Uh, with particular emphasis, just for, for by way of explanation, on the independent state legislature theory, which was the centerpiece uh, of the uh, effort to overturn the 2020 presidential election. To this day, as you know, you know, that is a th- well, in fairness, The theory was first, uh, you know, articulated by then Chief Justice Rehnquist, joined by uh, Scalia and Thomas in in a concurrence in Bush versus Gore. But the conservative movement hook up that uh, independent state legislature theory uh, in the 2020 presidential election and is now pressing it uh, to this day in the context of the elections clause in Moore versus Harper. So, yes to whatever extent that that you want to think of of um the trajectory of the conservative legal movement being represented by the independent state legislature theory the uh, effort to overturn the 2020 presidential election and then today the effort to give exclusive uh power to the state legislatures over redistricting and other time, place and manner of holding congressional elections. The answer to your question is certainly yes. And that's a very, very interesting question.
2: Let me follow up on that, because January 5th, 2021 was, I think, the first day you'd ever been on Twitter. Is that right? It was the day you you've set up your Twitter account. I
5: think your son had to teach you to use it, right? <laughs> it was not literally the day I set up, up the account, nor was it literally the first tweet, uh, but it was the first, I, I don't even know what you, st- I still don't know what you call it, but I think you call it a thread. <laughs> uh, that, that's what I had a uh, difficulty doing and had to, to call in my, uh, recalcitrant son to help me with uh, on January fifth, and who had other things to Let do me just as I up recall on that
2: because right? it seems you know. like that was a a pivot point for you, too, a moment where you seem to have made a decision about your role and what you were going to do. Tell us more about the last two years and and what your thinking has been about how and why you've taken such a uh, a leading role in pushing back on these theories?
5: Well, uh, I mean, the moment of my tweet was in retrospect now, probably the most significant moment in my life and career. It was a moment that I had been preparing for my entire life, but of course never imagined that it would come in this moment. But in the moment, there was no decision of, uh, to be made for me other than the constitutional decision of whether the uh, the vice president could overturn the election on January 6th. Now, as to that most important decision, as it relates to our discussion today, I, I, I had to decide before I tweeted w- whether I believed that there was any such thing as the independent state legislature theory. That would give power to the vice president to reject the electoral slates on, on January 6th. And there's no question that, that that decision for me in that moment was the most important decision that I will ever make in my life. So I tweeted it. And then to the to the back half of your question, I because of, of the advice that I gave to the vice president, I have said publicly that uh i believe from that day forward that i had uh, an obligation and a responsibility uh, to walk the country through the events of january 6 and put the words to the events of january 6 because january 6 was uh, an effort to overturn the election through the exploitation of the Constitution and laws of the United States. Not only was I the person, you know, who decided under the Constitution and laws of the United States that that effort was unconstitutional, if you will, but the entire plan from its inception was contrary to laws. But in its fullness, it it was a very intricate plan that involved the exploitation of not only the Constitution, but a number of laws of the United States. And I was the person, beginning on January 6th, I was the person who had the obligation to explain this to the country in the uh, interim uh, to the Congress. And that's what I've, I've tried to do. The Independent State Legislature question was the first Serious and seriously difficult question I had to decide on January 6th. And I knew from that day for the past two years that I would eventually have to explain it in full. And by doing so, explain my decision on January 6th. So the first time that I had the opportunity to begin that explanation, was in my testimony before uh, the the, uh, select committee. I then followed on when I had time, first had time, first had time after two years with uh, the uh, extensive article in The Atlantic. Uh, And then, uh, as you know, the final obligation that I believed I had was to uh, join uh, the respondents uh, in Moore versus Harper, as co-counsel, you know, opposing the independent state legislature theory. So that's a long winded way of saying that, that I didn't, I haven't made any decisions of any kind to break with the uh, conservative legal thought. It's never been an issue whether I broke with the Republicans because I'm not a political person. And by the way, I, I guess I would say to, 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 all of you on this particular podcast um to whatever extent this is relevant and it's not relevant to me at all but it's in it's relevant to to whoever might be my detractors i have taken the the conservative and the only possible view on these legal issues and that's why i think i've not been criticized by frankly, anyone that I've seen, because, you know, the conservatives, they just they cannot argue with anything I've said for the past two years. Michael.
1: Judge, can I just take you back further than the last two years? Uh, you were you served in multiple Republican administrations, you were a leading conservative scholar and judge. I mean, when did you first? <laughs> Have concerns about Donald Trump? Did you support him in 2016? Did you vote for him? And were there moments during, prior to the events of January 6th in the election of 2020, when you began to have concerns that he was a danger to American democracy?
5: I was gravely concerned during the Republican primary in 2015. Of course, I saw everything that everyone else saw. But I was alarmed by it, I guess in ways that that others were not. I saw in 2015 the man that, that exists today. I, I could not have imagined all of, of, of the chaos. And in particular, in, partic- in particular, the taunting of, uh, of the constitutions. The Constitution, the laws, and and our institutions of democracy, but I I was not surprised by any of it. So um, I was deeply troubled throughout the entire uh, Trump administration over all of these things. Uh, and then, uh, as I've, I've said publicly leading up to January fifth, my wife is the one who initially said to me, "Look." And by the way, my wife of 41 years is about the only person I ever speak to because because I can't say anything publicly until I'm ready. And and she said, look, Donald Trump is not going to leave the, the White House. And and, and I said, of, of course he will. It's not even an option. And she said, you know, mark my words, he will not leave. Well, maybe a week or 10 days before uh, January 6th. You know, she said to me, she pled with me saying he is not going to leave and you must do something. And, you know, I, I mean, this is my wife of 41 years. And 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 I said to her, honey, I, I, look, I, I now agree with you that it does not appear that he's going to leave the White House. But I don't have anything to do with this. There's not a thing in the world I haven't been in Washington for 20 years. No one knows or cares what I think. And I have no way, there's no possible way that I could even influence this. And by the way, that's what uh, uh, she was saying and what I was saying as she pled with me the night of January 4th as we went to bed. My wife said, "Mike, you must stop this." And I said, "Elizabeth, there's nothing at all that I can do. I'm sorry." And then, of course, Richard Cullen called me on on uh, bright and early on January fifth. So, Judge, uh, taking this,
3: Mike asked you the backwards-looking question. Let me ask you the forward-looking question. You are close to Liz Cheney, who served as vice chair of the select committee. She has stated repeatedly that if not her only objective, one of her main objectives was to make sure that Donald Trump never occupied the Oval Office again. H- here we are in uh, late December of uh, 2022. He has run, announced that he's running for president most experts think he still controls something like 30%, if not a little bit more, of the Republican electorate. If a number of Republicans run, he is uh, has a good chance of becoming the Republican nominee again, because they will divide up the vote. And we're a very divided country, and it's not with uh, outside the realm of, of the possible that he can become elected president again. So Taking it forward, you have already done a lot. Do you plan to do more? What else will you do to make sure that Donald Trump can no longer be, in your words, a clear and present danger to American democracy?
5: Dan, the uh, poetic justice of, of these historic hearings is that the president set out to destroy the January 6th committee and the political careers of of its members. And it is the committee that will end the political career of the former president. As to Liz Cheney, it will have been Liz Cheney who ended Donald Trump's political career, not him, hers.
1: Well, um, judge, some might say that, um, You and your wife received the ultimate vindication a couple of weeks ago when Donald Trump posted on Truth Social that he should be reinstated as president and all rules and regulations, including the United States Constitution, should be terminated. I can't think of anything that would have fully matched your uh, the concerns you were outlining than the president's own words. But um, I want to thank you for your insights. Uh, You've been a great uh, guide to all of us as we've tried to um, navigate the events of January 6th.
5: So, Michael, thank you. Let me just end with this given your lead in, because I was beyond greatly concerned about the president's statement on uh, about the Constitution on that day and, and with that statement in particular, that the Constitution of the United States should be terminated and he immediately, Restored to the to the presidency, if not long before on January sixth, the former president betrayed the nation and he betrayed the sacred trust that the American people had confided him in, in him. In my view, that's how serious that last statement by the former president was.
1: We're trying to wrap up here, but I'm inspired by that to ask one final question. I'm going to reanoint you as the district court judge presiding over the trial of Donald Trump. Would you accept
5: an insanity defense? I I will take that question uh, in the (laughs) vein in which it it was asked. (laughs) And uh, thank thank you and, and Dan and Victoria, thank all of you very much. Uh, It's been my honor to be on the podcast with you. And it's an honor for us to have you. Thank you. Thank you,
1: Judge. Okay, skullduggery listeners. As we told you at the start of the show, this is our swan song. We've had a great run for how many years has it been? Like uh, since I think since twenty eighteen. Five years. I think the,
3: the our first episode yeah. was the ant was the twentieth anniversary, fittingly, the twentieth anniversary of the Monica Lewinsky.
1: Right, right. Do you remember Eric Holder, who, you know, uh, who was the attorney general at the time of the Lewinsky stuff was actually the deputy attorney general. So we've had some some great times. We've had some great guests on the pod over the years. We've had, you know, uh, senators Uh, we have We've had virtually the entire top echelon of the Biden administration before they went into office. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Ron Klain, (laughs) Anthony Blinken. And Avril uh, Haynes, Avril uh, Haynes, Bill the Burns, the CIA <laughs> yeah, director. Yeah. Like the whole fucking cabinet were yeah. guests on Skullduggery.
3: Yeah. John Kerry. Yeah.
1: yeah. And let's not forget some of our favorite episodes. Um, uh, George Conway, who like uh, came out as a Trump foe on our podcast. Um, he revealed
3: know. himself as a Trump foe and an Isakoff
1: source. Yes, he did. Yes, he did. That was uh, something that uh, was uh, concealed from the public for 20 years until on Skullduggery, George Conway uh, came forward and talked about it.
2: But who is not a Mike Isikoff source?
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, actually, I can name uh, actually all those people who were skullduggery guests and are now in the Biden administration. They're not Isikoff <laughs> sources. OK. <laughs> Klain, Blinken, Haynes. Can't get him on the phone these days. But <laughs> um, but we will keep trying. We will keep trying. And um, yeah, look, I mean, basically, it's been a lot of fun. Uh, and I have to say, Victoria, you're Entry onto the pod uh, seems to have um, inspired quite a bit of commentary from uh, on, in the Twitterverse and iTunes and elsewhere.
3: Yeah, mostly
1: commentary
3: about you, Issacoff, yeah, because I of the, because of the contrast that she provided. And we, we can get into that.
1: The yes. foil. Yeah, right. No, I think I'm the foil, but. Um, Anyway, but it's been a lot of fun. I trust you've had some fun as well. And I understand Mark has got a little
4: treat for us to close out the pod. So, um, Mark? Hey, what's up, guys? I, I know <laughs> last time I made an appearance, I said I wouldn't be back for four years. I didn't realize it was going to be four days. That was two weeks right ago. Then. Are we going to get yeah. the offsides rule again? Is that- yes. <laughs> yeah. We're going to clean yeah. up the offsides rule. Soccer just made a change. So, uh, <laughs> No, I just wanted to come on and, and read some tweets from the listeners once they got news that this podcast was ending. And these listeners, very dedicated... Obviously sharing the wealth, spreading the word. Without them, you know, this podcast wouldn't have grown in the way that it did. So huge thank yous to everybody who ever listened to the pod. It takes a lot of work to make these things. So to know it's being recognized and or heard is is always a refreshing thing. So So kudos to everybody out there who supported the pod in the five years of its existence. So let me just read a couple tweets. I know you guys are going to play around with some iTunes comments because those are good too. But here's some more sentimental stuff. All right. This is coming from, I'm not even going to try to read these names because some of them are so ridiculous. But uh, Desning says, I'm so disappointed to hear that you won't be releasing regular podcasts in 2023. Skullduggery is a must listen every week for me. Someone named Sean said, Thank you for all the exceptional reporting over the past years. I'm gonna miss your podcast terribly and hope you return sooner rather than later. Hmm. We got a Bob here saying, What? Skullduggery Pod. Say it ain't so. Don't go. What will I do during my workouts? I'm at the gym right now. So this guy apparently is just gonna not be in shape for the rest of his life. So we bring the pod back. Uh here's another one from Mike Stefani. This guy oh he's a regular he's yeah. a super fan i feel yeah, he's like a super yeah, fan. Right he's giving us
2: questions too yeah. Yeah. absolutely.
4: <laughs> well he says you know i was having a happy friday until i heard the news that skullduggery pod won't have regular episodes in 2023 the people need the pod <sighs> hands together emoji praying to the sky <laughs> and the gods <laughs> I'll pick out one more here. I'll just do one more. There's piles. I mean, I could go on for days here. Um, (laughs) mm -hmm. Let's see. This one. Real shame to hear that the pod is on the way out. UK-based listener here who has kept himself informed of events over the pond with the fact-based outlet. A memorable episode... Was your roasting of Michael Wolf? Whew, that was a tough interview. <laughs> that goes back a while. Yeah. yeah. So, I, you know, just to show that, you know, obviously we have fans overseas, fans here in the US, but, you know, it was both bitter and sweet, right? A lot of disappointment. It's coming to a close, but a lot of supportive messages of thank you for supplying uh, not only good commentary and ch- and challenging commentary, but also being entertaining at the same time. So.
1: Well, part of me is tempted to urge all our skullduggery listeners who feel this way to assemble and march on the Capitol on <laughs> January 6 coming up, oh, geez. Oh. <laughs> demanding a return of skullduggery. Be be all peaceful. I can I, peacefully, peace but but it will be wild if they do, <laughs> <it> all right? <laughs>
4: anyway. All right,
3: okay. I think uh, that comment, Isikoff, um, yeah. Deserves some of the um, other commentary from our listeners uh, that you mentioned. Oh, now you're going to
1: rag on me. All right. Okay. Uh, All (laughs) right. And
3: they all have little headlines. Uh, The first one is Keep Persevering, Victoria. (laughs) And then it says At some point, the old white men may get a clue. (laughs) But this is my favorite one Isakoff and his mansplaining. And argumentativeness is practically unbearable. Hence, the one star for what is otherwise a really good show. I enjoy Dan and Victoria. <laughs> I enjoy Dan and Victoria, and I yeah. enjoy a lot of the guests and topics. But chill out, Isakov. You're like nutmeg or oregano. Too much absolutely ruins a
4: dish. <laughs> wow, you deleted four stars for what would have been a five. <laughs> yeah. Well. By okay. the way, there are a yep.
3: lot. There are also a lot of uh, comments on iTunes uh, that are laudatory toward you, Mike.
1: Except for this uh, one, a few. Yeah, except the ones you're going to read. Yeah, Victoria. <laughs> Victoria
3: is great. Michael Isikoff is awful. <laughs> He's like the overbearing, crazy uncle at Thanksgiving that pounds his fist on the table until everyone agrees with his opinion. Okay, Mike, this is this is too yeah. painful. I'm not going to read on. I'm just going to stop there.
1: <laughs> I get the gist. And let me just say, this is the not the first time I've heard such complaints
4: about my. Persona but well um, Mike but, before you close yeah, up shop I want yeah. yeah i I've got one an more extra special treat here for you guys you know being oh, a part okay. of the show for over four and a half years all right uh you know I've got I've collected a few things so I figured uh'll right. put a couple now, of now, by, by the way lame. we have
3: not heard this this is, this is this is breaking news on the pod
4: well i I just had a little fun look i I could have, I don't want to say I didn't put any effort into this, but it, I could have worked on this for days. Um, so I had I so just, much
3: material. I did. I really did. I had
4: about 100 clips and I grabbed the first 20 and I threw them in a montage. So here we go, everyone. Here's a, here's a bloopers reel. Uh, and Victoria, you'll be glad to know you're not a part of this because you never made a single mm-hmm. mistake. <laughs> <Here we> go. <laughs> oh,
1: God. Okay. <laughs> Payments to uh, Rial Hunter, the woman he had impregnated. Uh Fucking blew it right at the start right <laughs> <laughs> alright let's do it take two
3: by the way Isagoff zucked is like we're all zucked right <laughs> like we're f-
1: <laughs> yeah <laughs> a stunning downfall Al's oh shit it's a it's a fucking telemarketer hold on
3: <laughs> thanks to Alison Klayman and Marie Therese Gyrgis from the film The Blink it's a, it's called a Brink But he fucking (laughs) says the blink. (laughs) Okay. But let let, let me just ask you this question.
1: Talk about braggadocio, uh, um, but, um, and, and, you know, I'm gonna start over again. I just want to get Also, are you
3: rustling papers? Because I hear- I hear, like, papers or something rustling, Mike.
1: All right, well, I'll stop doing it.
3: Well, yeah, stop rustling. Stop rustling papers. I didn't
1: think I was rustling papers, but I will, you know. Um, You're still
3: doing it. I'm still hearing it.
1: I'm not rustling anything right now.
3: Yeah, it sounds like it's just, like, constant.
1: I'm not doing anything right now.
3: All right, let's just go.
1: Okay. But Sullivan, a judge with no... but Sullivan, a judge with no patience for government misconduct, would have none of But Sullivan, a judge with no patience for government misconduct, would have none of it. But, Sullivan, no none of it. <laughs> but But Sullivan, a judge with no patience. But Sullivan, a judge with no patience for government misconduct, would have none of it. Flynn, I can't say that. You say it very slowly. Okay. It
3: was like ground zero for some of the craziest conspiracy theories and and cons and cons and um conspiri- <laughs> conspiracy conspiracy. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> ground zero for some of the biggest conspiracy cons. <laughs> she really <laughs> threw me off my game here. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I was. Yeah, should I start from the beginning? Yeah. That was a mistake to eat like. Like salty, yeah, salty nuts. Dry, salty nuts. Okay, ready? I still got stuff in my mouth.
1: Yeah, I didn't didn't dress up because I said, oh, it's (laughs) Issaacov. Who's that? You got it.
3: it. This is definitely going in the bloopers uh, reel. (laughs) Bye-bye.
5: All right, okay. there it All is. Right. Can we All right. can we call this
3: can we call this episode the dry salty nuts edition of Skullduggery
1: <laughs> Yeah, I have a I have a feeling that if uh, we had left some of this in, we wouldn't be going off the air.
4: You know, <laughs> <laughs> we'd still be around. But I was
3: laughing the entire time. All right, okay. I think it's great.
4: <laughs> I, I could have went on for an hour. I'm not kidding yeah. you. I had
1: hundred <laughs> clips. So on that note of malapropisms and, and bloopers, um, we're going to say our final farewell for now, at least. And um, I'm kind of tempted to just end with um, that's the way it is. Good night and good luck. <laughs> <laughs> Goodbye, Skullduggery listeners. Goodbye, Skullduggery Adios. listeners.
3: of silence